Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very special edition, and I, I'm not really you know, overhyping when I say that. A very special edition tonight of The Other Side of Midnight. Tonight, I'm going to try to preview in the next three hours why we are entering a civilization changing moment in history not just american history but world history i mean folks uh, a thousand years you know later than tonight we may look back on this moment this night and say okay this is when it began because right now if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the banner for tonight which is about the artemis mission you can't miss the uh rather interesting looking female astronaut there and you click on that banner that takes you to the guest page well i'm the guest tonight i'm the only guy well actually i do have some little furry friends they are they're literally arranging themselves to listen to the show how interesting anyway um the countdown as you if you look at the first item under uh, radio pictures uh, on that page has been uh, continuing for several hours actually since this morning but a few minutes ago the uh, launch team got the okay from the meteorologists to begin with fuel loading there's uh, mission rules with uh, all rockets that you do not want to load fuel particularly liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen uh, when there is lightning in the vicinity and the uh, criteria say that there has to be a less than 20 percent chance of lightning striking near the pad. Well, yesterday afternoon, uh, or yesterday morning actually, if you were following the countdown with Artemis, they had five lightning strikes in the space of uh, you know a few seconds, and they actually had to go and do damage assessment and check the gauges and the instrumentation that measures electrical field voltages and all that, and they did not exceed any criteria, but lightning and fuel do not mix so there is thunderstorm activity uh across florida tonight i mean we're basically in summer in florida <clears throat> i've spent many a incredibly humid summer in florida so launching a major rocket in fact the largest rocket to date it's going to be eclipsed uh, in the next few weeks but for night for tonight for now this is the largest rocket that humankind possesses um, since the saturn V. The good old Saturn V. Wow. Anyway, so the countdown is proceeding. They're loading liquid hydrogen and oxygen. They'll be doing that for the next several hours, around 3 a.m. Eastern, which will be about the time that our show closes. The tanking will have come to a close. And then there is a couple of critical tests that they will um, uh, be conducting having to do with the hydrogen leak that occurred at the end of the um, what they call the wet dress rehearsal where they do everything on the terminal count up to and except uh, launch the rocket and that was aborted because they had a hydrogen fuel leak and major pipe and uh, linkage that's going to be tested tonight after the tanking has reached what they call the uh, steady state replenish because these these uh, fuels really want to boil off at um, 
Florida temperatures. So in order to keep the fuel load at the max for when you launch, they keep topping them off. And they're going to stop that at this point in the count, which is in about uh, three hours. And they will then do a pressure test to see if the seals and the refurbishment of that uh, pipe of liquid hydrogen, which they had a problem with several weeks ago, has in fact been successfully fixed. Uh, rocket launches are a million details. Well, tonight we're going to rise up way above 30,000 feet, and we're going to look to not only why Artemis is going, and remember, there are no people on board this thing tonight. This is an unmanned test. So they're going to be doing a few things differently, as they've been saying now for days and days, overstressing the system so that when they put people aboard, which will be like in a year, give or take, uh, maybe a year and a half, uh, and you may wonder why it's going to take that long between tonight's test and the next launch. Money, nothing more than money. You know, this is a star program compared to uh, Apollo, but the technology is so much better that they can be much more efficient, so they're able to do the minimal with the amount of money that Congress has given them. But in fact, if we had more money, the next uh, man flight, human flight around the moon, Artemis II, would take place in like maybe six months instead of a year and a half. I mean, that cadence is really, you know, for all of us dying to get the Artemis missions and people's eyeballs on what's waiting on the moon are really kind of chafing at the bit, which brings me to item number two. Because tonight what we're going to do is we're going to give you the mega background reasons from over 30,000 feet as to why this night may be looked back upon by historians as the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end of what? Well, the cover-up. Because if Artemis proceeds over the next six weeks, give or take a day or two when it's going to launch, um, everything on Earth could change. Because with the technology on board, specifically the cameras, um, it will irrevocably resolve the question, uh, is Hoagland nuts or is he for real? Because if there are no ancient artifacts on the moon, then I am certifiably nuts. But there are, as I'm going to spend the next three hours with exquisite, multi-layered, independent sets of evidence, hopefully prove to the jury out there, the jury of listeners all around the world, in something like 193 countries, to the other side of midnight. So let us begin. Item number two. It is very fortunate, as Isaac Asimov once told me many years ago, that Earth, in fact, has a moon. In fact, he was uh, kind of wryly uh, saying one day that if we didn't have a moon, we would have to invent one. Why? Because it's an exquisite stepping stone for a fledgling civilization, you know, kind of uh, encumbered by extraordinarily primitive rocket technology, which we still are. There are better ways to go into space, and that will be part of, you know, upcoming shows. Uh, I had, for a while, one of them sitting in my dining room. And no, all you agents, do not rush to, uh, uh, here I, you know, in the wilds of Placidus, 
I long ago put that in a very safe place where only I can get to it, but it in fact is a technology which makes rockets totally obsolete. It was invented about 10 years ago. I have the test module to provide to appropriate laboratories for test, and the only thing we've been missing is the funding uh, to actually carry out those tests. That is a very, very broad and directed hint. Now is the time when the other side of midnight could use some funding because we are entering the end game and the, and the funds of subscriptions just, just basically keep us on the air. They're kind of like replenishing the hydrogen tank on the pad tonight. They just keep us going. They don't give us any wiggle room to do the most important expanding things that we now need to begin to do, given that this is a political campaign with extraordinary data, which if we're successful, if we're politically successful, we in fact can initiate a stunning new chapter in this whole long soap opera called Disclosure. So Isaac said it's fortunate that we have a moon. Well, because we have a moon, we can go to it with rocket technology in about three days, although Artemis will take about a week, and there's a reason why it will take them a little longer to get to the moon than Apollo did. Uh, one of those little details that uh, most people probably don't know about, and uh, I guess I'm fortunate that I do. Anyway, if we did not have a moon, Isaac said we should invent it because the stepping stone, as you can hear in all of the plans that NASA has been laying out, um, are basically calling for it to become a stepping stone for a human mission in the next uh, decades. They're now talking about the late 2030s. Good grief, give me a break. Because if what I'm going to show you tonight has any traction, we are going to be on the moon and on Mars far above and uh, sooner than this incredibly archaic conservative timeline, which again is based primarily on NASA's lack of funds. Now you might say, how can an agency with $20 billion, give or take, be strapped for cash? Well, look over at the Pentagon. They had like $600 million when I last look, it's probably more now. Um, imagine what NASA could do with maybe twice as much money, maybe 40 million of billion as opposed to 20. But they have to eke out an existence because most of, most of the Congress does not really think down in their heart that NASA is important. They are funding NASA primarily because to their minds, it is a jobs program keeping people in their district you know, employed and thereby ensuring their votes when re-election time comes around. NASA is much, much more than the pedestrian jobs program that the politicians in Washington uh, view it as and they are funding it as such. Well, if what we're going to show you tonight finds any traction in the halls of Congress, and it won't do so until NASA, in the form of this mission, confirms what I'm going to say. But if Artemis, in, indeed, in the next six weeks, with all those exquisite state-of-the-art HD cameras, looks out and sees what there is on the moon to see, for anyone with eyes to recognize, 
then everything will change, including the funding, which means we could be sending humans to Mars not around 2040, good grief, but maybe as soon as 2030, which is what President Obama envisioned when he laid out this rather conservative timetable. There are some technological elements that have to be brought into line, but that's, a, that's another story. Primarily, the impediment tonight to putting humans on the planet Mars is funding. Nothing more, nothing less. It's funding. Now, item number three. This mission, this uh, test mission about to launch at 8.33 uh, tomorrow morning, that's Eastern Daylight Time, and you know I'm predicting that it will not launch for a variety of reasons, which we will not know until we approach 8.33. So let's assume for the moment that it is going to launch tomorrow morning on the 29th of August of 2022. It's named Artemis for a very good reason. As you can see in item number three, Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. And Apollo was the god, among other things, of music in the ancient Olympian Greek pantheon. And as you know, in the mythology that we've decoded, music is a synonym for resonant frequencies, and resonant frequencies are a, a, a metonymic form of hyperdimensional physics, torsion field physics. So Apollo equated in NASA's deep, deep mythological background to the physics, which is exemplified by the literal existence of the moon orbiting the Earth, as you will see. So, because Artemis is the twin, and she is the female side of the male-female bifurcation of intelligent life on Earth, NASA, in its infinite wisdom, decided to choose Artemis as the harbinger of things to come. And thereby, this program is called Artemis, and for very interesting reasons, all the people who are watching and participating and working on it are deemed to be members of the Artemis generation. We live in the era of branding. So, if you go down to item number four, um, if you look carefully at the uh, Apollo logo, remember in the upper left-hand corner is the classic Apollo logo, which we figured out years ago was really just kind of a code name for Orion. Because Apollo in the Greek is really Horus in the Egyptian, and Horus is the, pro is the descendant of Osiris, who is, of course, in the Greek mythologies, Orion. And you can see the close-up there of the medallion, that's Apollo looking out from the face of the moon. In NASA's view, in their mythological symbolism, the man on the moon was Apollo, who of course was symbolic with the physics, the HD physics, which in fact the moon orbiting the earth modulates, as you will see as we go through the morning. Well, I couldn't resist in item number five but putting up uh, one of those incredible views of the glorious, amazing, to still not overcome uh, Saturn V uh, on the crawler, the extraordinary uh, uh, crawler that took it from the vertical 
I'm sorry, Vehicle Assembly Building. There's a, an old joke about James Webb and uh, President Kennedy. Kennedy was doing a tour of uh, the Cape one day back in the uh, 60s before he was assassinated. And uh, they're in an open Cadillac and they're, you know, rolling around the launch site and the, the uh, Vertical Assembly Building and the Launch Control Center. And um, uh, Kennedy, who had this impish Irish humor, as they're passing this extraordinary cubic building, which is a cube, which of course is a double tetrahedron. It's the largest building in the world, by the way, still is. When it was built in 1965, it was, and it still is. Anyway, it's got these huge roll-up doors and the rockets are assembled vertically inside. There go Webb saying it was the vertical assembly building because you can either stack them horizontally and lift them up into place like the Russians do and like uh, Musk does with the Falcon uh, 9 rocket, or you can stack them vertically with huge cranes and fit them together and then you roll them out on their crawler to the pad, which is about three miles away, and it takes like a day because they're moving on the average of, uh, uh, you know, a mile an hour, and they they really don't, you know, they stop several times, they check the uh, gravel. It's, it's a very long, complicated process to get a huge rocket from the vertical assembly building to the pad. It certainly was back in the days of Apollo, and it still is now because they're using the same crawler. They've upgraded them. They've refurbished them. They have all kinds of new bearings and motors and diesels and cabins and air conditioning and all that. But it's basically the same crawler that I used to walk around and uh, kick the tires. <clears throat> and you don't do that because it hurts your foot because they aren't tires. They're huge, huge tractor treads made of steel. Anyway, so Kennedy and Webb are in this open Cadillac uh, Webb is guiding the president on the tour. And as they pass the cubicle, you know, vertical assembly building, uh, Webb is pointing grandly and he's describing this and that. And he says, Mr. President, and this is our vertical assembly building. And Kennedy, with that imprisumer, leans over and he says, uh, Jim, how exactly do you assemble a vertical? And of course, NASA instantly changed it to the vehicle assembly building better known as the VAB. So presidents do have an impact. Item number six. After the second rollout a, a few days ago, as it reached the pad at dawn, this is a stunning shot, uh, shot by one of the photographers there at the Cape, of the Artemis rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, uh, silhouetted against the rising sun to the east of Cape Canaveral in the pre, well, actually it was post-dawn, but quite spectacular. Now, item number seven. This is, this is an in increasing graphic I found which kind of symbolizes what's really going on around this mission. Because among her other attributes, uh, Artemis was the huntress. She also was the goddess in Greek mythology, of the moon, connecting, of course, by metonymy, uh, hunting and the moon. So why is it fitting that Artemis is now the name of the current mission and the current program to follow on in the footsteps of her brother, her very famous brother, because of uh, NASA and because of Kennedy and the decision to go to the moon uh, over 50 years ago? Well, because tonight, 
And I have a definite frog in my throat tonight. I don't know why. Let me take a sip of water. That might help. Hang on, guys. That's why I always bring water to the control room when we do the shows. You never know when you're going to need it. Anyway, Artemis the Huntress is kind of an incredibly fitting symbolic uh, attachment to this new program, the Artemis uh, Moon program, because Artemis the Huntress symbolizes the fact that Artemis the program is going to literally hunt for ancient artifacts all across the moon. And that symbology, after tonight, after you've kind of all internalized the really amazing data that I'm going to be able to show you, that we've never put together in this configuration before. And so this is going to be one that you're going to want to, you know, subscribe to Club 19.5, which is the way the show is supported. Hint, hint. And become a member and you want to tell your friends and your family. Because I guarantee you, of any place on the web or in broadcast journalism, the only place you're going to hear and hear it first the truth about what NASA is really finding on the moon is right here on the other side of midnight. And isn't that worth about uh, 10 bucks a, uh, a month? I mean, you, you, you fritter away money, I know I do, on all kinds of stupid things. If you want a direct pipeline to what is really going to happen as we enter this stunningly evidentiary period of the disclosure process. I mean, give me artifacts to UFOs any damn day of the week. Why? Because the occupants of UFOs can lie and probably will. The artifacts do not. They sit there waiting to be understood, to be decoded, and for us to find the libraries. Item number eight. Uh, this is a very interesting comparison. Side by side, um, the, on the right-hand side is the stunning uh, Saturn V vehicle with 7.5 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. It was 363 feet tall, which is a symbolic number. NASA back then didn't do anything without overt symbolism and 363 feet. I forget it off the top of my head, but it had some arcane, very important symbolic reference. The Artemis Block uh, 1 vehicle to its left is 322 feet high, which is a lot smaller than the Saturn V. Now, at liftoff, um, it generates 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust, primarily because it's augmented by those two ungainly solid fuel boosters trapped to the sides, just like the shuttle. This is what we call an engineering kludge. I mean, the Saturn V did not need the strap-ons and was able to lift into low Earth orbit 118,000 kilograms. Now, a kilogram is 2.2 pounds, which means you kind of uh, double that and then add a margin. So the Saturn V could put maybe 230, 40,000 pounds into Earth orbit and send 100 tons of spacecraft command module, lunar module, service module, to and, and from the moon, whereas the Block 1 Artemis uh, SLS vehicle can only loft about 95,000 kilograms, which is well shy of 200,000 pounds. But that will change. They're planning upgrades. There's going to be a Block 1B version of the uh, uh, 
Artemis SLS booster introduced before the next launch of Artemis 2, and that's part of the pacing item that has delayed the Artemis 2 mission because Artemis 1 can barely get to where it's supposed to go. They really, they put together a brilliant, uh, you know, duct tape and bailing wire to make this mission come about, but it's not the way you want to conduct any kind of operational flights with people to and from the moon. So that's an additional part of the delay of like a year and a half. And again, money, funding, an increase in NASA's budget would shrink that delay because it's basically, you know, when you pay for anything, from the federal government, you're basically paying people. It's not the hardware, it's not the software, it's not the engineering, it's the people, salaries, medical, all that good stuff. And the bigger the task, the more people in teams you have to put on something, and that of course raises the costs. So more money, more people, less time, and quicker results. Just a hint, guys, just a hint. Now, you need to be aware that sometime uh, in the next week or two, um, the dark horse coming up fast on the inside track named uh, Elon Musk is going to be launching his starship for the first time into low Earth orbit. That has been promised in the past, past several weeks, past several days. It's now going to slip into September, but that really doesn't matter because when Starship is in the running, it will be able to easily outdo SLS. But in, in, in case you hadn't noticed, NASA has, has contracted with SpaceX, with Elon Musk, to develop the landing stage vehicle, the equivalent of the Artemis lunar module, which will uh, take astronauts uh, from the uh, uh, lunar orbit that they will establish on mission number three down to the surface of the moon and back up again and then home. So that will make the comparison of the two preceding vehicles kind of moot because uh, the uh, Starship stack stands much taller than the Saturn V and it can launch a much heavier payload directly to the moon, although there is plans for Earth orbit refueling, which is another incredible advance that NASA could have done decades ago and is just now kind of getting around to thinking about it, while that's a uh, cornerstone of Musk's plans to not only go to the moon, but send the same starship, stainless steel, sparkling 21st century spaceship to Mars at some point. Item number 10, the Denuri capstone mission combined with Artemis 1 have trajectories in space, which if you look at number 10, and remember, all these are clickable. You click on them, they become full screen. Um, I've li limbed out the trajectory of each of the these, two, these three missions. The Artemis mission, of course, on this flight is unmanned. The capstone mission, which launched a little over six weeks ago, is unmanned. And the Denuri mission, which launched about uh, two weeks ago, it is also unmanned. They all are taking what we would term in the business the slow boat to China, meaning they're not going to get to the moon in three days. The uh, capstone mission is going to take about three months. We'll get there November 13th and be inserted into lunar orbit, unmanned, 55-pound, basically a super CubeSat, 
You'll hear about CubeSats tonight as the uh, Artemis 1 launch takes place uh, in the next few hours, hopefully. Uh, the the uh, orange line, that's the trajectory of the Denuri, uh, South Korean 1,500-pound unmanned spacecraft, also going to the moon, uh, going into lunar orbit, carrying the so-called shadow cam of Michael Malin, which is a kind of a long-range preparation for the Artemis missions, which on item number three, uh, mission number three, will land at the lunar south pole because that's where the water is. You know, that's where the ice is. That's where the volatiles that will fuel not only return rockets, but also breathing oxygen for the crews, for habitats, for the development of the fledgling moon base, which will be built at the South Pole in those deeply permanently shadowed craters, as you've all heard for many years, there resides this extraordinary reservoir of permanently frozen ice at super cold temperatures. In fact, the coldest temperatures in the solar system, Pluto's surface notwithstanding, four billion miles away from the surface of the sun, it does not have the coldest temperatures in the solar system, the moon does. And with that, we reached a stopping point. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. I'm laying out tonight the background for where the Artemis missions could be the most important missions, not only to the moon, but in the beginning of a whole new phase of human history. We shall return.
And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight on this Sunday night, August 28th, just hours away from the impending launch of Artemis One. Well, tonight here on the other side of midnight for the next uh, two and a half hours now, we're going to go through the background of why the Artemis One mission and the Artemis program itself unfolding in succeeding missions, beginning with live crew, real Mark I eyeballs looking down as they fly by the moon in about a year and a half, if the current schedule, you know, uh, continues is going to represent the stunning, shattering paradigm shift represented by human discovery and public acknowledgement. That last part is critical of what's been waiting on the moon for millennia, for uncounted generations, for literally millions and millions of years. And tonight, the unveiling of what's there, what is waiting seems about to begin. Okay, picking up where we left off, um, we were on item number 10, which is the combined trajectories of all three missions, all unmanned, which if you go to number 11, this is the... Uh, um, the Artemis uh, trajectory uh, in close-up. And if you click on it, it gets much bigger. You'll notice that it's this very long, looping journey to the moon. And then there are all kinds of interesting things that happen uh, when they go into orbit, which did not happen with Apollo. The details can be seen in item number 12. These are uh, uh, 12 and 13 are uh, the, the, the broad scale schematic of the trajectory of launching Artemis in this, what they call uh, a retrograde, uh, distant retrograde orbit, DRO of the moon, which will take it as far, well, I'll wait to that, you know, it's gonna take like about a week to make one orbit, depending upon the length of the mission, depending upon how the spacecraft is, is surviving in this, you know, stress test, whether all the consumables are working, all the electronics, all the uh, incredible number of individual parts that have to function flawlessly, um, including the updated, you know, 21st century state-of-the-art computer systems that, you know, Apollo could only dream about. Do you realize that, that they flew to the moon back in Apollo with a computer system that was a thousand times less efficient than what's in your smartphone, literally. Um, and there's multiple levels of smartphone technology in Artemis that will launch in the next few hours. So as Von Braun told me many, many decades ago when I asked him at a public news conference, how come Apollo was such an improvement over his early rocket days of launches and things blowing up and all that, and he looked at me in front of the entire world because we were all on live television, and I represented then CBS. And he looked at me and he said, <clears throat> Mr. Hoagland, computers. And that still obtains. The reason we're doing what we're doing tonight and tomorrow morning with Artemis is all due to computers and the incredible Moore's Law advancement in that tech. Now, there's some engineering upgrades that have really you know, kept us in the game. But the most incredible pacing item that has made literal technological miracles possible, in other words, doing all this with nowhere near the budget that NASA had for Apollo in equivalent dollars, accounting for inflation, um, 
Well, it's because of computers and the incredible efficiency where they get incredibly better about twice as, as much every 18 months, so-called Moore's Law. Item number 13. Now, this is an enlargement of the moon portion of the diagram in number 12. You'll notice immediately that NASA is still up to their symbolic best because the direct retrograde orbit of the moon that they will stay in for up to five weeks, once well, four weeks, a month, you know, counting a week to get there and a week to get back, um, and I'll get to why it's much longer than Apollo in a minute, that retrograde lunar orbit, and retrograde simply means that the spacecraft is orbiting in this incredible loop backwards to the way the moon is moving around the uh, around the earth in its orbit so it's a retrograde orbit relative to the moon's motion in orbit of the home planet uh, notice the distance between the high point of their retrograde lunar orbit and the center of the moon 39,000 miles oh and what is 39,000 miles well it's twice 19.5 thousand miles duh and remember, they're launching from pad 39B. That's important. 39. Uh, okay. B, second letter of the alphabet. 2. You divide 39 by 2. Oh, my God, you get 19.5. In other words, NASA cannot go down the hall to the men's room, even now, without conducting a ritual. And that's why I think the launch is not going to take place uh, tomorrow morning despite all their best efforts, because if they wait four days, if they launch on Thursday, uh, on the 4th, I'm sorry, on the 2nd of September, as opposed to uh, tomorrow morning, uh, their mission will shrink because of certain celestial mechanics realities from the projected 42 days for, for the Artemis One flight if they leave tomorrow morning to, <clears throat> wait for it, 39 days twice 19.5 so i'm kind of hanging my hat on the fact that they're consistent if nothing else and i guarantee you because of uh, of uh, superstition uh, at some incredible deep level in the agency if they can do anything that will reinforce what they're doing with the magic numbers the um hyperdimensional masonic numbers which have dogged the uh, nasa space program from the beginning they will not launch tomorrow morning. They will find some reasonable excuse. The hydrogen leak, uh, lightning too close to the pad, somebody hiccup, somebody threw up their lunch, something, anything, and they'll recycle the count to the second, which will give them a 39-day window of opportunity orbiting the moon. Now, why is any of this important? Because if you look at number 14 and look at that trajectory, by my calculation, given that they're basically launching in the same plane as Apollo, meaning they're in the equator of the moon, this is not going to be a polar orbit like uh, Artemis III will be, but this will be literally in the same plane around the moon, only a much more exotic orbit than Apollo. Um, their closest point when they get there in about a week um, will be 60 miles, which was the closest point of Apollo's orbits, the command module, and the lunar module descent to the surface. Uh, the difference is that um, they're swinging by in about a week at that distance, but then they fire the engine, the service propulsion engine built by the Europeans in this uh, 
collab- collaboration of nations and nation states between NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency. ESA built the service module. Uh, the, the U.S. contractors built the command module. They put them together. They've, they've had the service module ready for like two years, and it is going to function really, really wonderfully, I think, because the Europeans, remember, German engineering, and Germany is the primary uh, driving focus in terms of their space program of the entire ESA program. Don't tell the French that. Okay. Anyway, so... They will launch in this very elaborate trajectory, which will take almost a week to get to the moon as opposed to three days. Why a week? Well, it's the kind of taking the slow boat to China. You don't have to race to the moon to get there. You can take a very long, leisurely trajectory. And why would you do that? Because you're trading basically time for fuel. If you, F equals MA. If you accelerate your vehicle, which weighs a lot, to a higher speed, it takes a lot of fuel. If you're really penny-pinching and miserly and just want to burp out as little fuel as possible, you can basically set up a trajectory where you coast from Earth to Moon, from Earth orbit to Moon, and it takes months in a long, looping trajectory. That's what those trajectories are in item number 10. That's why they look so weird. The, the unmanned uh, capstone and Denuri missions literally go out a million miles uh, away from Earth before they loop back and then go into orbit around the moon. And it takes them three months to do that because they're saving precious fuel. Well, Artemis doesn't have all that time, but it has so many more consumables and capabilities than the service module of Apollo that they can afford to kind of loaf along, save fuel, Uh, take a week to get to the moon and the lunar orbit powering past phase as opposed to uh, taking three days shortly because the the Apollo astronauts had to get there and get back because of the limitations of consumables on board. Fuel, oxygen, water, that kind of thing. Artemis is, is basically fat on all these consumables. That's why they can envision a six week mission in space testing the spacecraft systems when actually all the future operational flights for Artemis are planned to be about 21 days. So they're looking at a two to one margin and they will find out all the little creeks and and crevices and crannies and cracks in their plan and the engineering. In other words, this is really, really, really what we used to call a shakedown cruise. And it's going to shake out all kinds of little niggly problems, which will obviously be uh, fixed in the year and a half between the launch tomorrow morning, I don't think, and the year and a half for Artemis II. Why do I have slide number 15 up there? Because 15 and 14 are intimately connected. When Apollo, in its three days, and the days are not really that important because it's the being in the plane of the moon's equator, which is critical, given that the moon is almost straight up and down relative to its orbit, it's only tilted uh, to the Earth's orbit by five degrees, and it's perpendicular to its own orbit um, in terms of its rotational axis, it means that during Apollo, there was a time when the astronauts, as they were rounding the curve to go behind the moon and fire their big SPS engine to slow down enough so they could go into orbit around the moon to be captured by the moon's gravity into this uh, circular orbit, Uh, they went through the moon's shadow, 
which is what that diagram number 15 is showing you, that even if you can't see them out behind the Earth and the Moon and every other object in the solar system, because of the Sun in the center of the camp, um, each of these planets have shadows, long cone-shaped regions where if you enter them, it gets very dark. It also gets very, very cold. So, uh, en route to the Moon, I have been looking for any demarcation of what Artemis will do when it enters the shadow of the moon prior to firing the engine to put into this very long elliptical uh, 39,000 mile uh, orbit of the moon, twice 19.5 of course. And I can't find anything. The only reference I found is a reference that because of solar panel bonding, remember this spacecraft, the Artemis spacecraft, unlike Apollo, actually extends solar panels like the Russians uh, once they get into space and those replenish the batteries. That's, by the way, the major reason why they don't really care much about time and the limit on uh, staying in space, orbiting the moon is uh, not limited by power, by electrical energy, which they store in batteries on board. It's limited by consumables that are not recycled like oxygen, water, etc. Oh, and the food. Yeah, don't don't forget the food. Artemis, the, uh, the, the next mission will actually have a galley and it will have a uh, uh, restroom and a gym. I mean, can you imagine this little cone-shaped spacecraft, which is like 16 feet across at the base? Uh, volume goes up as the cube of the diameter, so there's a lot more volume in the Artemis command module than there was in the uh, a very cramped uh, Apollo command module, but in zero gravity, the astronauts made it look roomy. Remember those tumbling videos, which were really film that's now been transferred to YouTube videos? Anyway, as the spacecraft goes to the moon, um, celestial mechanics says to me that it has to, at some point, go through the moon's shadow. And um, uh, what I was really wondering about is why there was no real written discussion of this in any of the literature. And then I found one reference that they can only stay in the shadow either of the Earth or the Moon uh, if the trajectory enters those two cone-shaped regions for about 90 minutes. After 90 minutes, bad things happen, and so they don't want to stay in the shadow um, over 90 minutes. So, if you read number 16, this is the reference that I found, uh, which is in... Uh, uh, Artemis One Trajectory Decision and Optimization Document, NASA JSC, that stands for Johnson Space Center, AAAS uh, number 20-849, that's the reference, you can Google. The Orion spacecraft is limited to eclipse durations of no longer than 90 minutes. This restriction was originally put in place due to the susceptibility of the solar cells to debond, ouch, from Orion's solar arrays when in the extremely cold environment of an eclipse. This restriction is currently in place also due to power and battery capacity concerns. The eclipse constraint on its own reduces mission availability, that's when you can launch, to a minimum of about 18% of what otherwise would be available for launching any old day or week or time of, uh, time of day. To attempt resolving these issues, and bringing these missions back into the fold, a mitigation algorithm was developed to reshape the trajectory 
along the flight path. They don't say that, but I'm adding that. And bring violating eclipses under the duration threshold. So why is that important? Because as you're going to see later in the evening, eclipses are the crucial, amazing, so elegantly simple key to blowing the doors off the centuries-long cover-up that we are not alone. And what's really hiding on the moon. It all comes down, as you're going to see, to the question of does Artemis in those six weeks going to and from the moon and the month long spent in lunar orbit in this incredibly uh, elongated 39,000 mile uh, ellipse um, that takes them a week to go around once, will they ever enter and exit even for under 90 minutes the shadow of the moon, which will give them stunning eclipses and given that they're planning to transmit all kinds of live video. They got all kinds of PIO uh, events, public information office events scheduled for live this, live that, you know, benchmarks, milestones, you know, furthest distance from the earth, uh, uh, when they go into lunar orbit, when they do the powered flyby, all kinds of things. What they have not mentioned in any of these hours long press conferences that I've, you know, been watching with avid interest, obviously, and I thank you for all you people out there who've been sending me updates and links and saying, like Don, you know, you got to watch C-SPAN. There's another Artemis briefing. It's all been very useful, very good. But nowhere in all of these has anybody said or have the press asked the question, are you going to be transmitting live color television video during an Artemis eclipse by the moon? And I think there's a reason, as you're going to see, why they've been avoiding this subject. Oh, this is a terrible pun. Like the plague, like COVID-19. Which brings us to number 18. This is the geometry that produces this extraordinary celestial wonder here on Earth, a solar eclipse of the sun. Very simple geometry. Click on it, it gets bigger. You can see that because of the distance of the sun from the Earth, and the distance of the moon from the earth and the relative differential in their sizes, we get uh, about uh, twice a year when the moon's orbit crosses what's called the nodes, which is where the orbit is in line with the earth-sun distance, you get an eclipse. You get the moon moving across the earth geometric-wise in such a way that the shadow, the cone-shaped darkness behind it, drapes itself across the earth and those people living in that shadow which races along at like a thousand miles an hour because of a combination of the moon's orbit and of the earth's rotation um, those people are incredibly fortunate to see a total eclipse of the sun if you've never seen one in 2024 there's a stunning eclipse that goes literally from mexico all the way up through maine and um, robin and i were able to witness the one in 2017. It was the last major uh, expedition that she was able to carry out with me at the top of uh, the Sandia Peaks where we measured, again with the Accutron, the extraordinary hyperdimensional physics that goes crazy during an eclipse. But that's another show. Anyway, item number 19, this shows you geometrically why 
um, you only get eclipses when the moon is lined up with the sun, which only occurs roughly twice a year um, in the in the spring and fall when the uh, nodes, which is what the uh, points where the orbit of the moon crosses the orbit of the Earth as kind of a tilted hula hoop. Um, you can get the geometry for the moon to move between the Earth and the sun, giving you a total eclipse. In any one location, it has been said, and I think the numbers are there to prove it, that um, you will experience an eclipse in any one spot once every 350 years. That rule of thumb, if you uh, wait till the end of the show, you'll see why, is going to be violated in 2024 because the eclipse track of the total eclipse of 2024 crosses almost at a right angle uh, just to the east of the of the Midwest, uh, kind of around, uh, I think, Kentucky, Tennessee. And so inhabitants there are fortunate that they will have experienced two eclipses well within their lifetime, one in 2017, a total solar eclipse, and then the one that's upcoming next year in 2024, and they don't even have to move off their porch. It literally will come to them obviously illustrating that statistics are only as good as the number of examples you have to uh, to process item number 20 given the stunning visual um extravaganza of a total solar eclipse uh, we've got all kinds of sketches going back you know decades hundreds of years uh even thousands of years if you count the uh, the anasazi who did a pictogram over in chaco canyon of what was obviously a total eclipse of the sun seen from Chaco Canyon in, I think, 1054 AD, if I remember my numbers from my visits uh, for NASA to Chaco correctly. Um, but in a more recent uh, history, on June 16, 1806, a Spanish astronomer named Fer Ferrer um, sketched what he saw in the way of a total eclipse of the sun. Notice his drawing has radial projections, rays going out. It's got a diffused nimbus around it, the corona. I mean, it's you can kind of identify some of the features that we know of modern eclipses. There's also a feature right around the moon that we'll talk to uh, uh, in a while. And then in 1851, remember that was in 1806, a few decades later, 1851, uh, Johann Friedrich Burkowski, uh, a Russian, uh, in Russia uh, on a daguerreotype, which was a very primitive early form of photography, whose complexity is well beyond describing tonight. Anyway, just look it up. Um, he was able to capture the um, astonishing uh, visual kind of analog of an eclipse during the eclipse of July 28th of 1851. And there it is. And you can click on it and make it bigger. And again, you'll see that there's this kind of peculiar feature kind of hugging the limb, which if we had been much, 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 much brighter as a species, we would have realized what it really was, you know, decades earlier. And God knows where we would be technologically tonight. Hell, we might even have starships going to and from Alpha Centauri. Oh, well, history did not move in that direction. Item number 22. Um, this is a compendium of seven individual eclipse uh, images, photographs, through a process called the wet plate process. Uh, in other words, still very complicated chem chemistry for photography. Nothing like uh, 
film used to be, for those of you in the audience who remember what film was, you know, celluloid, you know, little rolls you put in a camera. Um, some professional photographers will remember, uh, you know, glass plates. Um, those are developed in a bath, just like the, uh, the uh, plastic-based uh, film emulsions. But this was a much earlier archaic process called uh, uh, the wet plate process. And what the astronomer did who took this picture is he took seven separate telescopes, put cameras at each one, and he had to take seven long exposure, you know, like maybe a minute uh, photographs. And then in the dark room, he mechanically superimposed the seven, you know, the number seven tetrahedral images into one final print. And that's what you see there in number 22. And again, this is beginning to show some of the delicate tracery streamers that uh, uh, modern uh, CD photography can do literally with point and click. Technology really has moved on. Item number 23. This is why we get eclipses. And uh, it's really been an astronomical puzzle for hundreds of years, if not even longer, for those folks thousands of years ago that uh, kind of wondered about these things. Why is the moon optically the same size, give or take a few percentage points, as the sun? The sun is 400 times farther away, but the sun is also 400 times bigger. So that diagram shows this incredible cosmic coincidence, which astronomers have been touting for decades, if not centuries, and nobody has a clue uh, why it looks the way it does. And tonight, you're going to be one of the first audiences to find out why we, in fact, do get eclipses of the sun by the moon. And it allows us to see stunning details unavailable on any other planet in this solar system, even those that have 60 or 80 moons. None is like the moon around the Earth, and that is for a specific reason, which we will walk through later in the morning. Item number 24. Um, during the eclipse, during the uh, to totality, just before totality begins, uh, observers have noted for, you know, hundreds of years that you get a phenomenon on the ground. And if you put down a white sheet, it's much easier to see. You get a phenomenon called shadow bands. And we will return to shadow bands shortly, but we're literally at the top of the hour. We don't want to miss our breaks this morning. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're going into a detailed backgrounder as to why the Artemis mission is going to kickstart human civilization in a way that never has been possible before. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show 
and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.